for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? How we doing? Welcome back to the show. Happy Monday to all of you out there. On this episode, I interviewed Tiffany Brooks. She wrote the book, Gaslighted by God, exploring religious trauma, spiritual anxiety, and also the linguistic whiplash experience in churches that preach unconditional love, but hold hard boundaries. This was a really fantastic interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. As always, friends, thank you so much for being here. Have you noticed the different types of podcast content we've been doing over the past few weeks? I would love your thoughts. We're trying some new things. I told people this on Instagram the other day, but we kind of are in an experimental phase, working through different types of formats and content and ways to address certain issues. I have a very special episode coming out this Wednesday. I can't wait to share it with you because it's a new reoccurring monthly episode format that we're going to try with a guest. I'm going to have I'm going to have a co-host during these episodes. Hopefully you find them helpful. Again, we'd love your feedback on the direction we're heading in. I really believe for a lot of reasons that the future is us using our podcast and other platforms like YouTube and Instagram to cover current events and to help us understand, A, what's happening during that current event, what is the Christian nationalist perspective, and then as Christians trying to find better way forwards, how do we navigate this stuff in a better, more loving, and inclusive way? And that starts by informing you and then hopefully leading to commentary that helps you find that better path forward in your faith. So would love your input as we navigate and try some new formats and types of content and informational episodes to help you be more in tune with what's happening right now in our cultural moment. Of course, if you want to support the work that we do, we launched Project Amplify at the end of last year. We have such a long way to go when it comes to fundraising to help cover our massive expansion of content, which requires paying people and having the right systems in place to make the content consistent. So if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization. That means that everything that you donate, A, is tax deductible, but also it goes towards making this work paywall free and helps other people find the work that we're doing, which hopefully gives them a better way forward in our faith. We are so emphatically obsessed with the idea of letting Christians know that your choices are not Trump and Christian nationalism 
or leaving the faith completely. Of course, for those out there who listen, who left the faith or who are not Christian, we respect that journey completely. But as an organization, we believe that there are so many rooms in the Christian house to explore and that if the only option you were given was Trump and Christian nationalism and Jesus, I understand why you couldn't palette that, right? I understand why it wasn't palatable. But if you were introduced to other ways of being Christian that were inclusive and loving and actually fighting for the rights of our neighbors and thinking about how do we care for the oppressed and the marginalized? Maybe that is a more compelling reason to stay Christian. So anyway, hopefully that makes sense. I'm so grateful to have all of you here. You can donate in the show notes below. And like I said, all donations are tax deductible. Thanks so much for being here. We'd love your feedback. Talk to you all soon. Hi, my name is Tanuska and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I'm also a really proud TNE donor. What brought me to TNE is the ability to be in a space where I can ask good, hard questions about my faith and not feel judged and also feel spurred on to ask even more questions and to sit in my own um, maybe discomfort and also to make space for nuance. I love TNE and I'm proud to be a supporter. Tiffany Yecky Brooks, great to have you with us on the podcast. You wrote a book called Holy Ghosted. I'm excited to hear more about this. So thank you for making time. It means a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start with the question that any listener of the podcast knows is coming right away. Give us some backstory. I mean, you know, you're, you're writing a book about religious trauma and you've written a book, I think previously, that's kind of, this is like a, a successor to it. And so you have to have a pretty, a pretty unique story usually to, to find yourself now in life so passionate about something like this, right? That you write a book. So I'm just curious, like, how did you grow up? Did you grow up Christian, evangelical? And then what led you to writing a book like this? Sure. Yeah. No, I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist faith tradition. I've never heard that before. Wow. Right, you're shocking. the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We actually described ourselves as being like we were to the right of the Baptists. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we intense. We were intense. <laughs> but I mean, I actually, I grew up with lovely people. I mean, we were for a fundamentalist faith tradition. We were pretty, you know, air quotes normal, but I grew up South of DC. And so during the nineties, you know, as the, the wave of evangelical was really, really taking off, there was a lot of spillover of that into just the, the broader cultural soup of being a Christian teenager, you know, because everything went through DC at that time. And that's when Christianity was getting, you know, so politicized. And so I really sort of grew up in this weird mix of, you know, fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And then also just sort of, you know, just trying to be a, the good Christian girl who's figuring it all out. Yeah. So, you know, I went to um, a denominational college. And if, you know, I come from a faith tradition that women cannot have leadership positions. And so I always had this idea of like, well, if if I had been born a boy, I would have loved to have been a preacher, but I wasn't. So, you know, we move on. Like that was just never even a career option for me. So I got my master's degree. I moved to the UK, got my master's degree in classics and did my master's thesis on the gospel of Luke. And that was sort of my backdoor way into, it wasn't seminary. It wasn't, you know, overstepping <laughs> that boundary, but it was sure. my way of kind of working in that area. And then I uh, got my PhD in literature, but a huge portion of my dissertation was looking at cultural reception of 
the book of Genesis. And so again, it was, you know, I, I kept finding ways through academia to sort of backdoor my way into some of this deeper theological stuff. And then one day in 2000, so I was married to a Marine officer and he was stationed overseas and our church at the time was having small groups. And the pattern we were following was that whoever, whatever family hosted the small group meeting would provide dinner and then the husband would lead the lesson. Well, I was hosting that week and the somebody the, the question was raised who was going to handle the lesson because I didn't have a husband in my home. So Right. And who, you definitely couldn't take, do it because you have the wrong right. genitalia, right? right. So, exactly. <laughs> this pesky right. uterus, right? Right. And right. So, right. So, you know, the, the question was, you know, it was like, well, do we need to have him like come in via satellite? Like just all these like dumb ass wow. questions. And what made it worse right. was that it was actually a text that I had worked on in graduate school. But again, because of my gender, I was not considered worthy or, right. or, you know, it was not okay for me to be teaching this. So at that same time, I was doing a postdoc and I was teaching The Sun Also Rises. And I'm standing in front of a lecture hall talking to my students about the significance of the title and how it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes and, you know, the significance of that. And I had this moment where it just hit me that I have more freedom to talk about my faith in my secular college classroom than I did in my own church. Yep. And that was, that was one of the first moments that really stopped me in my tracks Yeah, where I couldn't choke down that cognitive dissonance anymore. You know, I had to, I had to face that in a different way. Right. Because I mean, to be fair, here you are in your own house, right? Your (laughs) husband is serving the country, which in those spaces is always a very big, important deal. You're obviously qualified to talk about this stuff, considering you did a master's level thesis on the book of Luke, right? Like, 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 like you're, you're already subverting the process because you're so passionate about this. And, and, and I say this no, growing up in a similar space as you. So I don't say to judge your sure. own space. I'm really talking about my own as well. But the idea of a woman leading a spiritual talk, even in a small group is so unfathomable. But you're thinking about about maybe bothering your marine husband overseas <laughs> to try and get him on a call to teach because well the wife no that's outlandish she could never do it. there's no exception to that rule so yes it makes complete sense that at some point you probably wake up and go wait why like just because of my gender that's the only reason how is this a thing and you know and part of what blows my mind is. And, and, you know, again, like you said, like I'm including myself in this. So, you know, no judgment to anyone listening, but how long did it take people from, from our generations to, to make that realization? Because when we were in 2018, I was at church with my parents and my daughter at that time was two years and nine months old. And like my mother was here. She can verify it. My daughter was that little And she turned to me, a man got up in front to pray. And my daughter turned to me and goes, how come only mans go up front in church? Oh my God. She was two years old and she realized that the church did not have a place for her as a whole person. Wow. And I thought it it took me 30 years to, to even really start questioning that. And you're not even three and you, and you recognize it. So I'm like, that gives me tremendous hope. (laughs) And she wrote her master's thesis at age 10 and has two PhDs at age 17. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I mean, okay. 
Okay, so that makes sense. So you have this moment where you realize something is really wrong here. You you already have your your master's degree. So obviously, you know, you're you're into your 20s at this point. So then what happens from there? Well, and actually, and I had my PhD at that point too. And oh so my it was sort gosh. of yeah. So it was like here I was, Dr. Brooks, but I couldn't wow. I couldn't speak in my church. Wow. So it was kind of wild. But then a few years later, you know, I still that, that was 2007, right? And so a lot of this language wasn't out there yet. Rachel Held Evans was sort of just coming into the awareness. Everywhere I looked, every bit of information I got was like, well, just pray more. You know, something's wrong with you. Just squeeze a little more Jesus yeah. on the situation and it'll be okay. Right, you know, right. and that was not where I was. And then I had this, this moment that I'm not proud of, but sitting at the intersection on Highway 39 by the Winn-Dixie in Meridian, Mississippi, where we were stationed at the time, and across the street, there's this church, and the marquee says, if God feels distant, who do you think moved? And I had a breakdown, just like screaming in my car at a church marquee, and these women you know, are sitting in the car next to me like, who's this crazy white lady just melting down at the stoplight? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had been fasting and praying and begging God to to meet me where I was in this confusion and this and there was nothing and then for a church marquee to be like yep because something's wrong with you because you're not doing it right and I just realized like something is broken here something is is fundamentally wrong in the way we talk about faith and you know really I'm I'm a word person that's what I do I was a literature and writing professor before I became a full-time author. Like I, my specialty is how do we use language to reach, you know, understanding? How do we create meaning? Yeah. And it hit me that the so much of the language of faith is steeped in abuse. And it's it's pushing the shame off onto us. And I know this is nothing new. Like, you know, everybody listening to this is saying, yeah, like that's not a new observation. We all know this. That's why, that's why most of us left or right. are struggling to figure out how we come back or can, stay. Can I can I break into the audience and tell them something that I think is really important for them to recognize? I get a lot of people who tell me this work is so difficult. I can't believe I, I can't believe I, I I didn't see it this way before, right? Et cetera. I just want to point out that you had a master's degree and a PA, right? And in, in understanding how language works and for, it took that much unpacking for you at that level to realize, oh my gosh, like something is really wrong here. So I just want to, I want to, I want to say to the person out there who maybe might feel dumb or stupid or whatever, maybe dealing with shame, right? That how did, how didn't I see it before? These systems are very well put together and they are designed to keep people in. And it takes a lot of unlearning and relearning to see what you were a part of. So don't beat yourself up, okay? I just didn't point that out. And I appreciate that part of your story, uh, Tiffany, truly, because I think it demonstrates just how much needs to go into untangling all the knots that fundamentalism builds and all the boxes that it builds that, that you can't see until you're able to finally break through. And that takes time and a lot of times education as well. Absolutely. I mean, as the old expression goes, a fish doesn't ask what's water. You know, when you are in it, that is your reality. And part of what you are taught is this reality is the only right way. Yep. This is the only way to view things. So when you start to question it, that automatically puts you on the wrong side. Because if 
If we are on God's side because we are living God's reality, then the moment you raise a question, you're suddenly opposed to God. Yes. I want to just emphasize what you just said in maybe some different language. It's un, as you were talking, I had, I had a light bulb moment, actually, Tiffany, as you were talking, where I said to myself, wow, it's amazing how Christian fundamentalism wants you to pray and seek the face of the creator of the, of the universe more. And the second that leads you outside their boxes, suddenly you're not allowed to do that, right? Yes. So like essentially fundamentalism has put God, and it's a little cliche, I mean, my AG church used to say this, but they even meant it still in a box, but you know, don't put God in a box, right? Well, okay, we're, we, we're not doing that anymore, but because it pushed against those boundaries, suddenly that's too far. Suddenly that can't be God because it's man, it's dictated and it's regulated by the boundaries that they've set up. That's a very interesting observation, I think, to mention in this conversation. Absolutely. And that's just it. Like, I come from a biblical literalist tradition. And so we are truly imprisoning God by 66 books. We're imprisoning right. God with God's own word, which is just mind-blowing. But right. like one of the things I talk about in Holy Ghosted is this idea that there are religious traditions that have the chronic practice of shaming the intuition out of people. Mm. That if you listen to yourself and you trust yourself, that's trusting in the flesh. And right. so it, right. it shames our ability to trust ourselves so that we don't trust ourselves. So then we look to our religious leaders to give us the answers, give us the interpretation. And it becomes that self-licking ice cream cone. You know, the system perpetuates itself because if we can't trust the Holy Spirit in us to guide us, then we have to rely on somebody who is usually a self-appointed leader to be yeah. the one who becomes the arbitrator of God to us. And yes. one of the things that that struck me in the writing of this book was I realized that, you know, I had always been told anytime I questioned something or, you know, didn't think that God was telling me to follow a strict biblical interpretation. It was like, well, that's, you're kicking against the goads, right? Like, you know, it's, you, that's, well, that's what Paul did. And that's what God called him out on. You know, you were kicking against right. the goads. It was never presented that maybe the goads were this literalist translation or, or interpretation of scripture that threw out common sense human decency, just, you know, broader application. So the goads always had to be scriptural literalism. It can never be that maybe the goads were these, these limiting ideas that we have put on God that were hemming us in. And if you right. kicked against those, you were sinning right. as opposed to, as opposed to saying, I think God is bigger than this. Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. 
The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket, let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's T-H-E-S-R-F.org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. Okay, so you left us on a cliffhanger there. You're oh, screaming sorry. in your car, freaking <laughs> out, reading that church sign. So you have this moment where you're in the car, you lose it, right? You're like, I, I can't hold it back anymore. The dam breaks. Now what happens? Oh, I went right back into the show because mm-hmm. that's what good Christian girls do and good yeah. Christian boys. Like when, when, that, when those moments come, we have to stuff them back down. Yeah, Because you can't tell anyone because it's shameful because we've been taught that let's extend grace to everything except doubt. Mm-hmm. Doubt as if, as if it's a crisis, as if every doubt, de- like any doubt inevitably is going to lead to every single domino falling down. And so we, we make doubt the shameful thing as opposed to allowing it to be a part of faith that allows for faith to be a dialogue. Because we've reduced faith to a binary. It's either something you have or you don't have. Faith is no longer a process in the way a lot of these, you know, our churches laid out, right? You know, Martin Luther, sola fide. I mean, like, that's great. Faith over works. But we've turned it into a state of being. You either have faith or you do not have faith. And mm-hmm. that's it. And if you do not have faith, you're out of the fold. But something that's super interesting to me is when you look at the spiritual gifts, when Paul talks about our spiritual gifts, One of the gifts that he lists is faith is a spiritual gift. Not everyone has the gift of easy faith. That doesn't mean their life is easy, but some people actually have, we don't, I mean, at least in my tradition, we don't go around shaming people if you can't speak in tongues or don't have the gift of healing, but we absolutely shame people if they don't have faith. Right. Yet faith is listed as a spiritual gift, which means not everyone has the gift of the simple faith. Yeah. So at some point, though, you obviously changed. Eventually, you came out of your shell, right? Because here we are. You're an author writing a book, Holy Ghost, and the subtext is spiritual anxiety, religious trauma, and the language of abuse. And I have found that oftentimes books like this and other books that I you know, uh, talk to authors about usually are very personal, right? Usually it comes out of a place that's like, yep, this was kind of my story, as we're kind of finding out in your case, Tiffany. So what is the what was the the series of events or maybe the first domino where you said, you know what? I'm not taking this bullshit anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to come out of my shell. What, what was it for you? Well, gosh, February of 2019, I finally, I was in a therapy session and I, right at the end of the session, I blurted out to my therapist. I feel like I've been gaslighted by God. Whoa. And there's this long pause and it's like, okay, well, our time is up for the week. You know? right. <laughs> so, Good so luck. What See you next week. <laughs> right. right, right. But I came back the next week and I said to her, 
I think that's the title of a book. And she said, I do too. And so that then became the first book that I wrote, which is Gaslighted by God, Reconstructing a Disillusioned Faith. And that is really just a look at how we reconcile the God of the Bible with the God of experience. Mm. And, and that was really sort of my first foray into kind of speaking publicly about this and admitting that, you know, we're coming a lot of us, or at least, at least I have these questions and I imagine some people do, or I have these, this resistance and I didn't know what the reception was going to be. And I was really afraid. And, you know, I was sure I was going to end up on a bunch of prayer lists, which is fine. You know, I'd love it if people pray for me, but, you know, I didn't know how this was going to be received. And what blew me away was the number of people from my faith tradition, from other faith traditions who have said, thank God, I'm not the only one. Mm. I thought it was the only person who thought these things or said these things. And I'm at, I'm at a wonderful church now that, that welcomes, you know, these, these questions and doubts and conversations. But our pastor invited me to speak to the senior Sunday school class about that book. And when I finished, this sweet old woman raised her hand and she said, I'm going to be 92 next month. And I've waited my whole life to hear someone else say this because I thought I was the only one who felt this way. Mm. Wow. And, and yeah, and it was, it was so chilling to me because I realized like, I'm not this special messenger here. I'm just kind of saying something that we're all thinking, right? or at least a lot of us are, you know, and, and I'm so thankful for those people, you know, people like you, people like Richard Rohr, people like, you know, Rachel Held Evans, who have, who have kind of opened these doors to make these conversations. Okay. Beth Moore, you know, like she's such a big one because the Beth Moore Bible study, like, oh my goodness, like that was every church approved of that. And then she's somebody who was like, you know what? Hold up, hit the brakes. This, what we are doing, what this has become is so far from the heart of God. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just, I'm so grateful for the people who have, who are opening the doors and making the spaces for these conversations to happen because so many people have lived have suffered in silence. Yeah. Thinking yeah. it's not okay to say these things because that's what we've been taught. Yeah. No, I mean, for sure. When I first started TNE on Instagram in December of 2020, same kind of vibe. Like, hey, anyone else thinking this stuff? And it was really at the time just me being curious. Like anyone else, I'm kind of thinking about these things. I'm not sure if, if, if this will resonate. And then, you know, you just realize like, oh my God, there are so many people like me or who are, in some cases have it worse than I've ever had it, you know, or have had it differently than I have ever had it, who are asking the same questions or, or questions that go even deeper than my own. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's kind of dig into the, like, some of the, I have questions about, about the, even the subtext, right, of the book, spiritual anxiety, religious trauma, and the language of abuse. And one thing I like about this conversation, Tiffany, and I interview a lot of amazing people, a lot of great authors, a lot of them are psychologists or, you know, psychotherapists, and they write books about this from that angle. And I think that's obviously so important, right? You need the people who are trained in that, in that method of helping people to really understand. But you are seem like your formal training, and correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, is more in the literary world and more about language and how we understand language. I love that actually, because I think that this goes, it's underrated, the importance of understanding how even words have meaning that we really assign to them to express things, right? And so it's a whole different kind of world. I, one person I follow on TikTok a lot or Instagram is Dan McClellan. He's like a, a scholar, professor type, and he's a big, you know, word dude. And he always talks about how we have to negotiate meaning into the text, et cetera. And that, it just helped me think about things different. And I think in this case with, 
when we when we map on your expertise onto a conversation like this, it can give us some new insights. And one of the first questions I want to ask is, help me unpack these terms, spiritual anxiety, religious trauma, abuse. And the reason why I bring this up is because I think these words are very, they're used very often, especially in the online spaces. And that's a great thing. That's not a negative thing at all. Sometimes like the term deconstruction, right? Can become so wide. It's like, well, what do we actually mean by that? Is there one meaning? Maybe there are multiple meanings. Maybe it depends on who's using it and all valid. But I have found that, that, that the term deconstruction can get so ambiguous that it's like, well, what are we actually talking about, right? And I'm finding myself sometimes in the same boat when it comes to these words because I'm like, okay, what what does actual, you know, religious trauma, what, what, what are we talking about here? Like I've heard it used, I've heard the term really an adverse religious experience being used before. I'm like, oh, that helps me for, for my experience because I wouldn't call my experience traumatic. It was definitely unhealthy, but I want to save the traumatic language for people who have experienced legitimate trauma so help me unpack some of these terms. How do you use them in the book? What do they mean for you, et cetera? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to say I loved your episode about deconstruction and Derrida and all of that because um, oh, teaching literary uh, criticism. Benson? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Bruce is great. Oh, Whew. it was fantastic. And and I was, you know, taking notes the whole time being like, oh my gosh, yes, I want to say about that. And, you know, I have a part in my <laughs> book too, where I talk about Jesus being a deconstructionist and what does that mean? So when mm. he was saying that, I was like, yes, this is, but sorry to, to speak to, what specifically what you're talking about, the way I talk about spiritual anxiety in the book, you know, the first thing I say is I point out that it's not healthy religious devotion. It's not normal feelings of regret or repentance. It's not mental illness. That is something different. We will talk about that. And it's not an attempt to erase or deny the reality of sin or its consequences. But what sure. it is, is it's an all consuming fear of angering God through intentional or unintentional sin. It's persistent doubts about our worthiness of God's attention or care. It's feeling like we're constantly failing at a God-centered life. It's, it's faith responses that are shaped by or rooted in unhealthy thought patterns, heightened fears of rejection, rejection by God or by one's faith community. And it's involuntary and internalized legalism, which is um, something that I coined in the book, but, but I explain what I mean by that. And so... To me, it's spiritual anxiety is, and, and I should say, I interviewed a, you know, a bunch of people whose stories are also in this book, and, and I talked to them about how they define spiritual anxiety, because I think it's important that we sort of understand how we are using these terms, like you said. That kind of long <laughs> definition that I just gave you was sort of what all these different people brought, that they said, this is the anxiety that I feel in my mind, in my body when I think about these religious issues. Mm. And so in the book itself, I look at seven different ways, seven different methods that spiritual anxiety can be manipulated. And so I look at discipline, so control through fear, dogma, control through indoctrination, decoration, control through praise, denial, control through rejection, degradation, control through shame, diminishment, control through dehumanizing, and domination, control through power imbalances. And I look at the way that each one of those can be exploited in toxic religious environments to keep people in this state of constant worry and fear because that extracts obedience and it extracts loyalty. Because if people are kept in a state of imbalance, they are constantly going to look for something that reassures them that they're okay. And if the message that they get from their religious leaders, and I also specify 
it doesn't have to be a religious leader. This can happen in family structures, just sort of any sort of authoritarian environment. But when it's wrapped in religious language, these are ways that people are manipulated and controlled for the sake of extracting an outcome or obedience. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's helpful. That's helpful. I, I always, I always wrestle with the. I'm not sure if this is the best word, but maybe the balance between some of the things that you mentioned in a healthy sense and in and in an unhealthy sense. Like for example, right? You mentioned I think like like shame via a group, something like that. You know, yeah. and I do think that there are moments, right, where like I've had friend circles. And there's been times where I've said something that I didn't even realize was like really offensive to someone. And someone in the group was like, hey, man, that's a boundary that like you should probably apologize for because you really hurt that person. And that was an experience for me that really helped me become a better human, right? But it sounds like what you're talking about is when those those maybe ingredients that can be used in a good way are used in ways to control and maintain someone's behaviors, actions, and to kind of keep them on the leash of if you don't always make us happy, we're going to shame you into control. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I do try to draw that distinction by saying, you know, like doctrinal differences, for example, like doctrinal differences are not abuse, but the way that they are enforced absolutely Mm. can be abusive. Right. And so like I try to make sure, you know, and I also make the point that not all religious leaders are these, you know, mustachioed villains that are tying souls to <laughs> celestial railroad tracks. Right, you know, right, like yeah, that's right. not what I'm doing. This Good book point. Is not, Good point. Yeah. Like this book is not an attack on Christianity. It's, it's a, in a calling out a sort of request for accountability for people who are manipulating others in the name of God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, w- w- I think what makes a lot of this tricky sometimes can be that like, where are th- the lines between, I mean, this is just a hypothetical, right? Well, I don't think, actually, it's not a hypothetical. I think it's a very real world scenario. Let's say person A starts attending the church down the street, right? And they really like it and they're great and everything is good. And they say, hey, I want to volunteer. Okay, great. And, you know, a lot of churches now have like a handbook. Like, hey, here's what we expect out of our volunteers, right? A, B, C, D, and E. And let's say there's some stuff in there that I'm like, this is not for me. You know, like, I'm like, one church I, I volunteered at was like, Hey, you can never really drink ever. I'm like, okay, I don't drink period, but I mean, that's kind of legalistic for me. But I, I, I had no problem saying, Hey, I agree to the terms and conditions that you're giving me, even if I disagree with them. Right. And so sometimes I found like, well, is, is what that church did by setting boundaries for their group and for whoever wants to join that group inherently traumatic or abusive or religious, you know, religiously, you know, whatever gaslighting or something like that. Or does a church have the ability to say, hey, here's the boundaries that we set for people who want to volunteer here. It's up to you. But if you do volunteer here, these are the quote unquote standards we're going to hold you to. And then someone says, okay, I agree to that. And then that standard is enforced and then it gets becomes problematic. And again, I want to be careful. What I'm not trying to do is to downplay or trying to say, oh, people who get really hurt by church, they're just not playing by the rules. I'm trying to find the balance of, of course, groups have the ability to set their own boundaries versus when those boundaries mm-hmm. become really unhealthy and toxic for people and end up doing a lot of damage. One of the people who I interviewed whose story is in this book okay. was a professor at a, a Christian university. And one of their rules was that you could not watch, you could not possession of, could not rank, could not own, could not watch any movie beyond a PG. And that if you purchased a movie that was like PG-13, 
then you ran the risk of getting called in for disciplinary disciplinary action. And, you know, it was like, okay, you know, like that's, that's extreme, but those are their rules. Right. Okay. Those are the rules of operation where it became a problem for him was that that then began overstepping of if he raised a question, he's a a poli-sci professor. And so he, you know, he's engaging in conversations in his classroom and a donor says, you need to stop having these conversations because Mm. this is not the will of God. And he's like, well, hold on. Like, and then he said, well, you need to go and talk to the elders of your church about this. And he's like, well, the elders of my church, he's like, first of all, I'm a 50 year old man. He's like, you know, with, with, with a terminal degree in this field, you know, the elders right. in my church are not the ones who arbitrate what I teach. He's like, I'm not teaching outside the bound. You know, I had an, actually another professor who was teaching at a university and she taught biology classes and it was a Catholic university and she brought up the topic of birth control and she never said She never ragged on the Catholic position of no birth control. She simply said, for those of you who are going into the health fields, you need to be aware of how birth control pills work with the body that, you know, that they're maybe, you know, 99% effective and the rhythm method is about 95%. Like you need to be aware of these things for, for meeting with, with patients. And she was fired. Wow. Yes. And so that's where I think you see some of these issues come in where it's absolutely fine. Like we do need to have boundaries on our beliefs and our practices and what, you know, what we agree this body of faith is about. But again, it's that idea of the way those things are enforced or the way they're carried out or the way they're used to control people to extract something from them um, or to cast people out because we are trying to keep those in power in a position of power. That's where you end up running into it being abused. To me, Spencer Helms, the author of Faith Unleavened, and I'm super excited about Project Amplify, not only because I get to join my homie Tim in this endeavor, but because it's it's been time for a long time for those of us who've become convinced that God is not a weapon that nobody owns our story of faith or theology, to become resourced enough to push back against harmful dehumanizing narratives that are being touted in the name of Christianity and in the name of Jesus. So would love for you all to click this link and join us trying to turn the tide and take back some of the narrative about faith and about God. See you there. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. That makes sense because in my scenario, when I was forced, you know, to make a choice, right? Stop serving at the church or stop doing this work. I didn't break any of the rule books. Like I I wasn't drinking. I wasn't cheating on my wife. I wasn't, you know, like nothing I was doing was broke any of the rule handbooks that I agreed to. But because I was going against 
in their mind, the teaching of what the pastor taught on the platform. And I was a drummer as a volunteer drummer, by the way, on the platform. I was therefore a leader who was therefore going against what the pastor was saying publicly. Therefore, I couldn't be on the team, right? That wasn't really expressed in the handbook. Like There was no clause <laughs> saying, hey, just FYI, you can't have any other opinion publicly than what our pastor thinks, right? So maybe that's a good way of kind of seeing the difference of like, yeah, in that handbook, I know there were things in there. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But you know what? For me, it's worth the compromise to have the mm -hmm. community. I, I like what we're doing. It's not a big deal. But then all of a sudden, I found a new boundary that was hidden. <laughs> and yeah, it was like, yeah, well, exactly. you've been here for six years, but here's here's your choice now, right? Like A or B. I'm like, whoa, where is this coming from? I thought I was in. I thought I was relationally a part of the community. And I didn't realize that me rethinking certain very Christian beliefs still, by the way. <laughs> right, but right. me rethinking those publicly put me on the chopping block for being part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's such a good point. And Something that I get into in the book is we look at a number of different rhetorical fallacies that are often used in authoritarian church environments yeah. that shut down discussion or twist discussion or are used to attack people who have maybe stepped out of those little boxes or, like you said, transgressed those invisible boundaries that we've set. Um, right. And that's used to either force them back into the box or discredit them. So, yeah, we look at a number of different you know, rhetorical fallacies, call them out, identify what they are so that hopefully people reading this book can now, you know, listen and be like, oh, wait a minute, you know, that's a straw man argument. Or, mm. you know, that is, that's a fallacy of composition. And that's, that's how this works linguistically. That's how it's trying to manipulate my thinking. Mm. But that's not actually, you know, if you take a step back, that's not what's being said here. Yeah, that's this is really helpful. And I, I like that we're kind of talking about it in the church context because, you know, I think that that there are – I'm of the opinion, audience, this is just my opinion. You don't have to believe me on this or, or agree with me. But, you know, I believe that local communities, local churches have the right to really do mostly whatever they want so as they're not a cult hurting people, you know, except all, all the normal caveats, right, breaking laws, et cetera. But like, I, I know that there are plenty of churches out there who are quote unquote not affirming, right? The problem I've heard from many of the folks in the, in our community who are queer are like, listen, I'm not so much concerned that you're not affirming. I'm concerned that you're not clear about you not being affirming, right? Yes. So when you, when you have welcome all on, on your church sign, you say we're a family and all are welcome here. And then I go to serve and you go, oh, well, because of either you being a woman, right? Or because you're queer or whatever else, like you can only go this high on the ladder of volunteerism, they're like, what the hell, right? Like this is Absolutely. this is unhealthy. I, I wish I knew this earlier so I could have just walked past your church and found an actual church that would have brought me in for, you know, and accepted me for who I am and that would not be a barrier to entry. So I Absolutely. think that's an important distinction here, right? Is like, I think if churches were more clear instead of playing this really weird shell game of you're a family until you find the boundary, until you do A, B, or C, right? That would solve I probably a lot of our own pain points in our own adverse religious experiences or traumatic experiences. Well, and no surprise, a lot of people I interviewed for this book, a number of them were members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah. Especially in dealing with issues like shame, because they're totally. like, I have to either lie about who I am to stay in the church or I have to leave the church. But if I lie, then I'm told, you know, Liars go to hell. 
And so right. we're like, so I either right. go to hell because I'm gay or I go to hell because I'm lying. Right. But either way, like if I want to stay in your church, you're forcing me into a sin. And, you know, on top of the shame and everything else that's being heaped upon people. And so it, I mean, it broke my heart listening to the stories from these people from the queer communities who are sharing just what they went through saying, I love Jesus. I want to be in a faith community. The faith community does not want me. And then right. what, what are the, again, the rhetorical fallacies that are used in some of these clobber passages to right. tell them that they're an abomination. And is that really the heart of God? And so, yeah, I definitely get into, get into a lot of that in the book because it was, it's heartbreaking, but it's so real, especially to people in those, in that community. Okay. Help us understand, or maybe break down from your expertise, right? The linguistical whiplash that these churches often have, right? So I'll, I'll paint another example. That's probably all too familiar for so many of us, right? We're part of a more modern evangelical church. They have the nice praise team and you're singing these songs about God's unconditional love. And even when I mess up, you still forgive me. And God is so good. And the overwhelming, you know, reckless love of God that kicks down all the doors, Corey Asbury style, right? And then you hear the pastor talk about how who you are is just inherently sinful. Or you find out in your small group that, you know, yeah, uh, my person, my friend who I thought was cool thinks that gay people are just the, the worst people ever, right? Mm -hmm. Or your church leadership says, hey, your theology about A, B, or C is really too problematic. I think it's actually unbiblical. So we got to let you go. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What are we doing singing these songs and presenting this? All, you know, all are welcome. All are, are safe here. And then the whiplash of language that is like hard boundaries. You're actually not welcome here. Who you are is inherently sinful. Help us understand that, like linguistically, what's going on and what are the impacts of that? Maybe a good way to answer this, because, you know, I have, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to put this concisely and I'm thinking maybe an illustration. So we're on a podcast. Take your time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, if you look at, okay, the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. She, the way I always heard that lesson taught, you know, where Jesus says, yeah, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now isn't your husband. It's the preacher is always like, so the guy she's shacking up with, you know, like she's presented as this like ancient Elizabeth Taylor, who's just going through the string of husbands, you know, right. and she's like, she's just been divorced over and over. And Jesus says, you know, yeah, you need to straighten up and fly. Right. And then she tells, here's this man who said everything I've ever done. The word divorce is never mentioned in that story. We are never, ever told what the circumstances are as to why that woman went through five husbands. And this one she's living with now, it doesn't say she's living with him as a spouse. Maybe, you know, she could very well be living with him as a servant, just under the protection of the household. It could be a non-consensual relationship. We're not told that because I think there's so much common sense that we know that we have been taught to look past or ignore when we are told this is what the passage means. So. Think about what we know about marriage in first century Palestine. These weren't yep. love matches, right? Like you weren't going out and saying that guy is right. cute. You know, Bob, the shepherd is cute. I'm going to go yeah. marry him, right? This was arranged by your family. Right. So what? Right. Newsflash, courting is still unbiblical. That, that, that's <laughs> yes. not what's going on here. They're you know? not reading <laughs> Jane Austen by, you know, by oil lamp here. Right. So the family this is not a woman who's just choosing to go through a bunch of husbands. Her family is failing her 
over and over and over again in right. who they, and so, and if something either her, the husbands are dying, maybe this is Leverite marriages, in which case she's going through trauma or the family's not choosing good spouses, or if there is something so inherently problematic about her that people can't stay married to her, then the family should have be taking her in and looking after her, right. but they're not. And so, sorry, that's my really long way of getting to say that the way we present some of these stories reveal more, or, or this language that we use reveals more about our own anxieties. Yeah. Because I think you see like we modern Western Christianity has written this woman a backstory that she's this abomination and this wild woman with loose morals. But really the story, it's not about condemnation. It's about comfort and fulfillment and acceptance. And Jesus sees the, seeing the experience of a hurting person and reaching out and saying, you're not even going to have to worry about worshiping in a mountain. Like it's beyond the, the love of God, the reality of God, the heart of God is beyond all of that. And in condemning the Samaritan woman's behavior on the basis of our own cultural assumptions, we're bearing false witness against her. And I think, and like I said, I know it's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I feel like that's what's going on in a lot of our churches with, like you said, some of the, this, this, these hidden boundaries is that we're reading these cultural assumptions. We're reading our own cultural values onto these biblical stories. And then saying, now go and do likewise. When maybe in our, our frantic panic to be right and to, right. You, you know, do the rightness to be the rightest Christians. Right. We're missing the humanity, which may actually be the point of the story. Like you can't, I mean, people will say, well, you can't read 21st values, 21st century values onto an ancient text. Fine. But it's also, you also can't, read ancient values into a 21st century culture or try to enforce ancient values in a 21st century culture and call it integrity. Right. I mean, and there's, there's a whole other layer to this, right. Of like the whole enlightenment and modernist movement Absolutely. and then the fundamentalist response trying to say, Oh no, we can play ball. We'll just apply the same <laughs> standard to the Bible. Right. And you yeah. know, so there's, there's that layer too of like, like our modern evangelical apologetics industry world. is just obsessed about being quote unquote, right in the objective scientific sense. Yeah. And it's like, that's a really bad formula to throw on a compilation of 66 books with different genres and literary devices being used coming from a totally different context written by dozens of authors, right? Over a thousand years. Right. Like maybe that that's the wrong framework to put on top of a collection of books like that, right? And so there's that layer too. It's like, it's like just the framework that we apply to even the idea of being right or not is already so far from like yes. the world of what we see in the scriptures. They just don't think that way. And one book audience that you should read that will help you understand this is the book Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randy Richards. It's a really good book that will just blow your mind. And he's he's a professor out of, I think, Palm Beach University, and he's he's great. But anyway, side note for you all out there, get the book. It's great. That's really helpful, Tiffany. I think that's really good. While we have a few minutes left, I want to talk about, and I think this, we don't talk, we don't talk, we don't talk about this enough. What does a healthy, we'll use the word church community look like, right? Like, I think a lot of us who are in the process of deconstructing or renegotiating our faith, we know what's wrong. We have to keep calling that out. We have to advocate for accountability. All that is understood. 
But also, I've been thinking a lot of like, okay, where are we going? Like, what are we working towards, right? Some people want to dismantle everything, plant the flag on top of the rubble, and move on. And honestly, in in many ways, there's many agreements with me. I'm like, yeah, some things just need to be dismantled, and we need to move on. But for those of us who want to stay in the house of Christian thought, I think that the concept of church or the gathering is still really important. So what are some of the ingredients, some of the ethics, maybe we can say, that for you go into what a healthier expression of the ecclesia might be like? Like, what are some of those things for you? One of the first things I think is that we need to clarify whether when we say deconstruction or you know, detoxification or delousing or whatever language, you know, renegotiation that we're using. There's a difference between deconstructing faith traditions and deconstructing God. Mm. And, you know, and that's something that I talk about in the book. And I think that's a really important line to draw that deconstructing faith is questioning habits and practices around beliefs. Deconstructing God is questioning whether those beliefs are valid at all. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I think that this is a challenge that a lot of people are facing today that they're, you know, when when you see people come out and, you know, rail about, oh, a deconstruction is just going to, you know, the, the deconstructionists are so horrible and they just want to destroy the church. You know, this idea of, well, there, there are different flavors of it. There are people who are who are saying, I want to stay in the faith, but like we need to reconsider this and rebuild. And there are people who are saying, I don't even know if God is real. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that's an important distinction to draw. And I think it's also important to consider that, you know, for years, the, for, for centuries, the Christian brand was, we are the ones who take care of the widows best, who take care of the orphans best, who, you know, meet the needs. And now people are looking at that and saying, not only are you not doing it best, but there are other people who are doing it better, completely detached from God. And so I don't have to have faith to go and do what Jesus called me to do. Do I even need Jesus to go and do? And so I think that's, again, going to that question, I think, and I think that's an important thing to, to think about in these discussions. But the other thing I would say is that looking at the idea of, of what is the big picture. So when translators look at when translators work with a text, they have to not only look at the words in front of them, but what's what is the overall message of something. So for example, you could say, if you say the reporter scribbled furiously on his pad. Now if you did a literal interpretation of that, you could or excuse me, the journalist, right? The journalist scribbled furiously on his pad. A literal interpretation of that could say the diary keeper made random shapes angrily on a cushion used for absorption. Right. That's a literal word for word translation, but the meaning completely changes. Right. Right. And so you need to look at the what is the context of where that sentence falls in a text to make sense of it, to know how you interpret that correctly. Christians have gotten really good at losing the context. Mm. We've gotten really good at missing the big picture, you know, and doing that proof texting where you pull this one thing out that says what you wanted to say. But where does that fall in light of the overall story arc? And the arc is always, you know, I mean, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, right? Like the arc of the universe always bends towards justice. It always bends bends towards love. And so that needs to be, I believe, the the, the framework and the foundation for which we interpret things. So we were talking about, you know, clobber verses and members of, of the LGBTQ plus community. 
you know, so when we look at, you know, these questions where, you know, Jesus says, you know, allegedly says something, you know, against homosexuality, this is the same Jesus who said, who said anyone who harms a child would be better off with a millstone around their neck. Well, Jesus is living during the reign of an emperor who was famous for abusing boys in the most horrendous way, sexually abusing children and especially boys. And, you know, there, there are a number of contemporary sources that talk about this. Doesn't it seem more likely looking at the big art of the story that Jesus is more concerned about protecting the vulnerable than condemning what two consenting adults do in a bedroom. Mm. And so when we look like to me, that's just a really good example of people saying, well, look at this verse. Jesus is clearly saying X, Y, Z. Well, maybe not. Like, let's Mm. look at the context. What Jesus is saying here is much more in line with protecting the vulnerable, protecting children, speaking against the corrupt authorities who are in power right now, as opposed to, I'm going to tell you the dictates about your personal life, yeah, about your, your, you know, your personal bedroom habits. And so you have to look at the broader context to make sense of that. But when people come to the text with their own agendas and their own, I mean, and everyone comes to the text with an agenda, right? But when you come exactly. with- an agenda of exclusion, or this has to prove this particular stance that I've taken, you are going to interpret words and ideas as, as confirmation bias, right? You know, that, that right. fall in line, that reaffirm that message that you want to put out of those people you want to condemn, of the ways you want to be right in your rightness, as opposed to looking at, well, what's the big picture here? And the big picture is something completely different than what right. it has been turned into in many cases. So I'd say that's that's my my really long answer to your what should be you would hope would be a simple question of like let's let's start over where do we start <laughs> I think we have to look at what the overall story is pointing to yeah. and it's always pointing to love and restoration and wholeness and inclusion and welcome Yeah that makes sense no I I feel that for sure you know, when, wherever people are, things are complicated because we're people. Sure. So I totally understand that. Listen, friends, the book is Holy Ghosted, Spiritual Anxiety, Religious Trauma, and the Language of Abuse. It comes out in April. So you can make sure to get your copy or pre-order on Amazon and definitely, you know, pick it up and read it. Tiffany, I appreciate you making time. Thank you so much for being here. It means the world. Thank you so much for having me. Just thank you for being a place where these conversations can happen because it's so important. Of course. No, for sure. We'll definitely keep in touch. Thank you. Thanks. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details.